The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. The moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Welcome to Understanding the Law, Week in Review. The show is hosted by Peter Lamont and Bob Hughes and is a service of the law offices of Peter J. Lamont and Associates. The firm has offices in New Jersey, New York, Colorado, Puerto Rico, and affiliated offices throughout the country. Understanding the Law, Week in Review, is a weekly radio broadcast discussing recent legal and business news and topics. As always, we welcome calls from our listeners. If you wish to discuss any of today's topics, please call our switchboard at 347-855-8831. Please note that this broadcast does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with any of our listeners. And now, your hosts, Peter Lamont and Bob Hughes. Good morning and welcome to Radio Week in Review. Uh, today we're going to be talking about Real Housewives of New Jersey star Teresa and Joe Judice, a, ho- a hotel blocking guest Wi-Fi, a Macy's escalator injury, a teacher choking a student, sperm bank lawsuit, and much more. Uh, before we get into the show, I want to thank our sponsor. Today's show is sponsored by Audible, the leading provider of audiobooks on the Internet. Audible has a massive library of more than 100,000 audio programs, and they're providing our listeners with an exclusive offer. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash UTL radio and you can download a free audiobook. Absolutely no strings attached. Uh, you can download books that we talked about recently on the air. We had Lou Adler on and he has a book, The Essential Guide to Hiring and Getting Hired. You can go over to Audible using that special link, audibletrial.com forward slash UTL radio and download a copy of that book absolutely free. So it's worth it. Give it a try. I also want to remind everybody that your feedback is so important to us. It really allows us to provide you with the best guest information and content possible. So please let us know what you think of today's shows, uh, today's show and our other programs by posting on our social media pages, including Facebook, Twitter, Google, YouTube, or by emailing us directly at info at utlradio.com. Links to all of our social media pages, just in case you didn't get that list that just ran down, can be found on utlradio.com. And finally, as we said earlier, if you want to talk about any of today's topics, you want to you know, and comment, give us a call, 347-855-8831, and we'll put you on live, talk to me and Bob about your take on some of the news stories that uh, we're going to be discussing today. Good morning, Bob. How you doing? I'm doing outstanding, regardless, again, that it is Monday. Oh, outstanding. Wow. You must have <laughs> had a good weekend. Uh, not, not a bad weekend, uh, date night weekend, which was always nice. Got some live music in and uh, the Detroit area, well, uh, around, in and around Detroit. So yeah, it was it was it was a fun time for a change. Uh, took the kids to grandma's and uh, remembered what it was like to be alive. Nice, nice. The only time I use the word <laughs> outstanding is when it's a bill. 
Yeah, which reminds me, we got to talk later. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so no, actually, despite the weather, you know, I'm actually in, despite it's a Monday, I'm actually in a pretty good mood for some reason. Uh, I'm not sure why. Maybe it's going to be a good week for a change. I'll be a positive guy this week instead of my uh, normal cynical. Open. So Nice. <laughs> All right, Turning well, over a new leaf. I, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. No I turned on over a lot of them out in the yard, but uh, yeah, if you, you'd, you'd cover my cynical cynicism this week, that'd be great. I appreciate that. It got you oh, covered. Oh man. <laughs> so you know, one thing that uh, you know I want to talk about real quick before we get into the news is something that happened last week. Um, fans of the Real Housewives show, uh, Housewives of New Jersey, that show that's on Bravo. We're going to talk about it later mm-hmm. on today, but I just want to mention. I mean. That was big news for reality TV, big news for people in Jersey. Um, you know, the, they got sentenced, and we're going to talk about that later on. But that's something that really kind of shocking, you know, to an extent. And we can get into the specifics later. But anybody listening that uh, has been following the Real Housewives drama, not the reality TV drama, but the actual drama between Joe Judice, Teresa, and uh, obviously these charges that have been filed against them, Give us a call, 347-855-8831. Post on Twitter. Let us know what you think about this, because this is certainly big news up in the North Jersey area. And, uh, you know, good lessons to be learned, talking bankruptcy later on and, and you know, federal issues and federal courts. So uh, we'll get to that later. But it's it was big news this week. Yeah, and actually some interesting things were, were covered in that trial, which I found uh, uh, I couldn't help but chuckle. Well, you know, I've been before Judge Salas on a number of cases, um, <laughs> cases really, and uh, I, I really like her. I think she's a good judge, and and you know, just it's shocking. But we can talk about talk about it later. But I just wanted to to let people know, call in and talk to us about it because you know, I've got some I think good insight having had Judge Salas on a number of cases, and uh, you know, we uh, we can talk about it. So we'll get to that later. What do you have for us up first, Bob? Oh well, something's uh, you know with 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 um, personal uh, protection and stuff like that. That's always been a large conversation. There's been some very high profile cases in the last few years, and they start to get to, to the difference between castle doctrine and stand your ground laws. And here's something interesting that not everyone figures out, and it it's really ties into a lot of that stuff in Waukesha, Wisconsin. Castle doctrine doesn't cover. Parking lot shots fired. A person's castle does not extend to the hallway or parking lot of his apartment building, according to the Wisconsin Court of Appeals. Wednesday decision of last week put to bed Charles Chu's claim that the court hearing criminal charges against him should have been instructed or should have instructed the jury as to the state's castle doctrine. Now, Chu was living in a home with his former girlfriend when she returned to pick up some of her belongings. The opinion states that her new boyfriend, Andrew Lee, and a friend... Uh, waited in the car at first, but eventually approached the apartment and heard some arguing inside. And there's conflicting testimony regarding whether they had permission to enter the apartment, but there's no doubt that they actually did go into the apartment and proceeded to attack Mr. Chu. Now, Chu shot each guy in the leg. However, he continued to shoot from the doorway of the apartment building while they ran across the parking lot, according to the opinion. Now, before his trial, Chu asked for special jury instruction on Wisconsin's Castle Doctrine, which permits the use of force in certain situations of unlawful interference with one's person. The Sheboygan County Circuit Court denied Chu's request, however, because it found that he fired the shots outside the apartment. 
In affirming Wednesday, the three-judge panel with the Court of Appeals addressed the issue narrowly. Statute clearly states that the men would have to have been in the dwelling when he was shot. And the definition of that term does not include the parking lot, the court found. The Castle Doctrine does not justify continued use of deadly force against an intruder when the intruder is no longer in the actor's dwelling. Now, that's, you know, a lot of people always say, you know, there's, there's, you know, you just keep firing until the threat's eliminated. Well, once these guys left, that threat's eliminated. And the court kind of, the court was paying attention here. And not everyone pays attention when they start, things get, get a little crazy. So, um, Peter, I mean, I don't know, what's, what's New Jersey's situation up there? And what are you, what have you had the experience with? Well, you know, it's, it's very similar. Um, obviously, every state's got a little bit of a tweak in their statute concerning the Castle Doctrine. You know, other states call it Stand Your Ground Doctrine. Um, but primarily, you are permitted to protect yourself uh, if you've got someone who has broken into your home. And depending upon your state, you know, you have to really understand the statute because there are certain states where if somebody breaks in, you have the obligation, even though it's completely ridiculous, to say, stop get out, I'm directing you to leave. I mean, that's just crazy. you get got somebody coming in with a gun or a knife, and you're going to say, excuse me, sir, could you please leave? Um, but that's what some of the states require. So it's, it's something that you really need to look into because, unfortunately, people are, are, are across the country experiencing a great number of break-ins, and I don't know if it's a result of the economy or fears over Ebola and and some of these other sort of apocalyptic type things going on, but you know what basically you're entitled to do is you're you're entitled to protect yourself, and once the person leaves the dwelling, you can't continue to shoot them, which is what the court said here. But you know when you put yourself in that situation and you have somebody who's broken in, and you're all you know filled with adrenaline and you're trying to protect your home and your house and and your your family. You know, you can almost understand the guy continuing to shoot because I don't I don't think it was something, you know, at least experience wise, most people that get in this situation, they're not intending to just shoot him for the hell of it. They're all worked up, they're nervous, they typically have not had this sort of encounter before, and they just continue to shoot. Unfortunately, the statutes are very clear and in this guy's case, you know, um, he's going to have issues because he continued to shoot while they were fleeing. Now, other states have... But a lot of people... Go ahead. Oh, a lot of people, yeah, forget that, that once that threat, that immediate threat to you is 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 nullified, you've got to stop as well because then you become the aggressor. And you can't lie and wait, say, oh, I'll wait for him, and then they'll come back. You can't do that as well. There's, there's that, that line. And, and if you've been through a CCW class, they're... They're pretty good. They don't, they don't spell out the statutes, but they're very good about telling you exactly how you should handle the situations. And then, like you had said, it's up to you to recognize it. Right, yeah. You know, you, you make a good point because a lot of states have specific statutes concerning traps. So if you were to put a trap, there was a, a very famous case where somebody had rigged up a shotgun to the front door, <laughs> and it was meant as a deterrent. I guess it was be, before ADT. Um, you know, or any sort of reasonable security systems were put in place. So they rig up the shotgun, and when you open the door, you know, just like the old uh, comedy movies where paint would fall on your head, it, instead of paint, you get shot in the face with a shotgun blast. And so that was found to be a little excessive. 
but they do have statutes about traps, and you said lying in wait, and that's exactly right. So, you know, you have an obligation in certain states to flee. Um, I mean, if you want to stand your ground, move to Texas, because I don't think in Texas you have the obligation to do anything. I think you could shoot everybody that you want in Texas. Yeah, actually, the duels are still legal. <laughs> That's the place to go. Yeah, but, right. you know, but I think you, know, you just have to be careful. You know, it's it's all part of, and I think that it's something that, that people who, it's not just guns either, by the way. You know, if you have a crossbow, if you have another weapon, and you chase the person down the street, you know, after they have fled your dwelling, after the immediate uh, threat is over, it still constitutes assault or battery, um, you know, so it's not just, just gun owners, it's anybody. You know, if somebody... Right, that's a good point, yeah, if you have a right. weapon. But it's certainly something that I think in, in today's day and age, I mean, I, I don't know if it's just paranoia or it's the region that, that I live in or, you know, it's just all this really frightening news that's going on. But I see a lot of people who are sort of on the fringe of, of starting to engage in the prepper mentality where maybe they're not full-fledged oh. preppers, you know, digging a bunker in the ba- in the backyard, but people are starting, you know, people that I've spoken to just, you know, in, in the areas around where we are stocking up on water, stopping up, stop, stopping up on, uh, stocking up on food, you know, it, yes. I, after Hurricane Sandy up in this area, people started to panic. Everybody started getting generators and having water and food. <laughs> But um, you know, I think Ebola and all these other things that are going on are quite scary. Oh, sure, yeah. No, in ten, twenty years of, of calm, we'll 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 take care of that. But yeah, generator sales pretty common right now. I know that uh, I'm in the market to buy one because last winter was no fun, losing power for three days in in December, and and that's just a small thing. But yeah, from a prepper standpoint and and like a real problems. You know, it, it's what is it? They say prepare for the zombie apocalypse, and you'll pretty much uh, be prepared for anything. Yeah, well, yeah. I don't know about the zombie apocalypse, but uh, yeah, at least preparing yourself with food and water for a couple of days is probably not a bad call if you have the means. Right, and know what your state's law is concerning home invasion. Really, I mean, it's something Absolutely. everybody should know. If you're a homeowner, right? You should know about homeowners insurance. You should probably know what happens if somebody breaks in. Absolutely. I uh, kind of shift to some family based things. You probably remember uh, Terry Schiavo, Peter, correct? Yep. Yep. Yes. Well, that, that, that argument probably not going to go away for a while. Um, and there's probably going to be the changes in how courts look at it uh, ongoing. And in Oakland, California, a family wants a brain dead teen declared alive. Now, generally you see a lot more of uh, the reverse situations here so they can administer end-of-life care. Well, attorneys for the family of a 13-year-old girl declared legally dead 10 months ago claimed this week that she has regained brain activity. In a petition urging the court to reverse its December 2013 decision declaring Jahi McMath brain dead, her family's lawyer, says her organs continue to function and that an MRI shows neurological activity. This activity, combined with her response to commands given by her mother and an examining physician, as well as the onset of puberty and the start of a menstrual cycle, is demonstrating that Jahi's brain death is not irreversible in the court, as the court has previously found. Jahi was pronounced brain dead in December by three doctors uh, after the child went into cardiac arrest following a routine tonsil operation. Now, McMath's family fought with Children's Hospital to keep her on life support, and in January they agreed that McMath's mother could remove her from the hospital as long as she assumed responsibility for care. 
Judge Evilio Agrio of Alameda Superior County Court has ruled that the hospital did not have to keep McMath on a ventilator because she had lost all brain function. So here you have a situation where the hospital and, and all the experts have given up on this individual. Family steps in and continues care. And looking at the, the different signs of life that you have, it seems that life is going on. But is it is it a situation where the brain is actually functioning or is it just nature taking its course? And, you know, the, the biggest thing I see here, Peter, is not everybody thinks, obviously not a 13-year-old, but not everyone thinks about end of life or elder law or what happens if you're in a situation where you can't make decisions for yourself. No, and, you know, I think that, that this generation of people, I mean, you know, you ask lawyers and you say, do you have a will? And they tell you, no, I don't have a will. We write them, but I don't have one. Um, I think that's very, very common. I don't think people think about it. I don't think people like to think about it. But it is certainly something that you do need to think about. You know, you can do it yourself. You can go hire somebody. However you do it, you do need to do it. But what's interesting in this case is that this um, this this family has moved the girl, I believe, to New Jersey where she's continuing care. And this is where, um, you know, these these you know, some people are calling them miracles are occurring where she's responding and that sort of thing. But what's interesting is this. This goes back to some of our litigation discussions in previous shows. What has to happen here for this girl to reverse, or the girl's family, to reverse the decision saying that she's brain dead? And what really has to happen is somebody's got to come in and say, look, here's new evidence to suggest and support our theory that she's not brain dead. And that evidence cannot be presented simply by the family, or by a lawyer. What they're going to need is a panel of expert witnesses who can testify based upon a reasonable degree of medical certainty, the same way they did when they declared her brain dead. And that's how it happens. You know, the, the, um, the, the lawyers or the lawyers for the hospital, they'll bring doctors in, and the doctors will testify that they have thoroughly examined the patient, that they believe her to be brain dead based upon a reasonable degree of medical certainty. Same thing has to happen here. But what I've already seen in following this story is that those opponents, those people that think that she should remain declared brain dead, are saying that the lawyers who are now um, sort of uh, pushing forward and, and presenting this evidence of brain function or limited brain function are relying on expert sources who may not be credible. And that's the attack that's, that's starting to um, surface, that they're, they're bringing in brain function doctors who have had prior issues in the past. Not malpractice, but they've been wrong, they've been incorrect, they're not a fully qualified facility, that they're uh, not real experts. And that sort of thing is what's going to determine now whether or not the court reverses their decision but, you know, one thing that's interesting is that this is how most litigation cases work. When you've got your lawyer advocating on your behalf, that's great, but your lawyer can't testify. Your lawyer can't, um, you know, talk about photographs. He can't talk about the proper way that electrical was done or plumbing was done or issues with respect to uh, roadway design. Only an expert witness can come in and testify about that. Even on a tax appeal, your attorney can't present that information without the support of an expert witness. 
So expert witnesses are critical. And I've heard a hundred lawyers say that when they die and come back to life, they want to come back as an expert witness because expert witnesses make so much money doing what they do. That's, <laughs> it's it's really applicable for this because everyone's thinking miracle and is the girl dead? Is is she is she alive? What's going on? And you've got lawyers getting expert witnesses to come in and testify, and that's really what this case is going to what it's going to hinge upon. It probably boils down too to that that. Either side is going to look for an expert, and they're just going to end up with conflicting experts. And it's probably just going to come down to a decision based on who's more believable, based on the science. That's exactly what happens. Because you go out and you hire an expert witness who says this person is permanently disabled, and then the other side hires one that says they're not permanently disabled. So it's really a matter of who do you believe, who do you like. Sure. You know, like George Clooney would have been an excellent medical expert had he remained on ER because all the women would have believed him no matter what he said. <laughs> now you're getting into jury selection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and, and things just get muddy and muddy, and it's, it's very. I, 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 it's unfortunate that anyone has to go through this, and you know, hope and pray that you never have to as well. So, yeah. uh, hopefully, it will turn out just fine. Um, but yeah, no, it, it's it's. Um, uh, a situation where that family is uh, going to continue to fight, that's for sure. Uh, more family news. A family in Florida, of a construction worker who was killed by a one-ton falling steel column, cannot collect a $2.4 million judgment from his employer, State Appeals Court ruled. The general contractor, R.L. Haynes Construction, told the metal bit employees to begin setting the steel columns after the epoxy had been drying for 44 hours rather than the recommended 72 hours. Victor Lazaraga, probably didn't get that one right, was tightening a wire attached to one of the columns when the column fell on him and killed him. His wife, Ava Santa Maria, and her children sued R.L. Haynes for wrongful death. The trial court agreed with them that the case fell within the intentional tort exception to the workers' compensation immunity and awarded them $2.4 million. However, there was an appeal, and Florida's 5th District Court of Appeals reversed that decision 2-1. to one on September 19th, saying that the standard Santa Maria had to meet was that her husband's injury was virtually certain. Now, the court has written that the appealees were required to establish, among other elements, that as a result of the shortened epoxy cure time, that the the column was virtually certain to fall and injure the decedent. Now, the, the problem is the evidentiary record is devoid of evidence of prior similar accidents, according to the court. Justice Silverman said, moreover, the remaining three columns in the set, all of which were subject to the same shortened curing period, remained anchored to the base and standing upright. Even if the column was virtually certain to fall, no expert said it was virtually certain to kill someone. The ruling notes. I have an issue with this one, Peter. Explain this one because this just, to me, it seems cut and dry. You know, the problem is with the workers' compensation bar that you find in every state. So how that works is... You, as an employee, you're not entitled to sue your employer for injuries that occur on the job. You can only sue them if the conduct is so egregious that it falls outside the realm of normal negligence. So, you know, you need to be able to show gross negligence, something that would rise to the level of punitive damages. So negligence is, typical negligence is you've got a duty to a particular person uh, or entity, you breach that duty because you failed to act in a reasonable manner. There's damages, and the damages are directly related to your breach of duty. So those four elements, and that's how a typical negligence case works. Now, 
in a gross negligence case, that standard of foreseeability with respect to your duty, it changes. You've got to show that, you know, it was so egregious that it shocked the consciousness or, or conscience that, um, you know, it, it's just beyond normal negligence. You you knew or should have known. It just goes beyond the norm. And with workers' comp, in an effort to try to reduce litigation against employers for tort claims, mm-hmm. and, a, and a tort is, um, you know, a battery or a, a negligence claim. It's not a breach of contract claim. Uh, they, they have this workers' compensation bar. So you've got workers' comp coverage that your employer pays, and if you have an injury, you've got to go through your workers' comp carrier in order to get some sort of relief. Now, a wrongful death that, claim... Yeah, go ahead. That seems to make sense, though. No, that seems right. to make sense. But now, this is a wrongful death claim, and so in order to, to sue under a wrongful death claim, you've got to be able to show that this was you know, egregious and beyond the norm of, of standard negligence. The problem here is that it makes sense to you and me, but there was no expert testimony saying that it was the reduced amount of time that the epoxy was allowed to cure that caused the injury. Now, I, I look at this and I say, well, what else do you think caused it? But um, there's more to it. There's probably some testimony about uh, the way that the, um, the, the columns were, were being installed beyond the epoxy, that it was more or less a freak accident, that the employer, by telling him to begin erecting the column before the 72-hour epoxy cure time was up, was not really the proximate, the the direct cause of the accident. Wasn't foreseeable. So all those things sort of take it back into the workers' comp bar, and that's why the guy, you know, is out of it. And, you know, I'll share an interesting story with you, something that we're working on right now. We have a, a woman who worked for a private school, and she tripped and fell while she was on the premises of the school, and she injured her eye quite severely, uh, a fractured orbital uh, socket, you know, surgery, everything. Right. So she went in and she filed a claim with her workers' comp carrier, and what she needed was a surgeon that had experience repairing orbital fractures. I mean, this is a serious fracture because it can impact your vision moving forward. Not every surgeon or doctor is qualified to do that. So when she went to the workers' comp carrier... The comp carrier said, here are the people that we have that you can go to. And none of them had the requisite <laughs> experience. Right? Now, isn't that typical? <laughs> so, yeah, I don't think that, that's a fox and hen house right there. No. So then what do they tell her to do? Well, the brilliant claims person at the workers' comp carrier says, hey, I have an idea. Why don't you drop your workers' comp claim and go over to your major medical and tell major medical to pick up because, you know, you can't sue your employer. There's the workers' comp bar. And we don't have the right doctor for you, so there's no point in you going through the workers' comp. Meanwhile, this guy's got his fingers crossed under the table as he's talking to her, saying, oh, I hope she bites because I can close my file. So she does it and, and goes through major medical. And now major medical is saying to her, well, wait a minute, this is a workplace accident. It should have been covered under workers' comp. At this point, she's already had the surgery, $30,000 worth of surgery, and, and here you are stuck. So... To an extent, to an extent, I think that the workers' comp bar is good, but there are other times when I just think, um, I don't know, I, I think it kind of misses the mark of what you're trying to protect against. 
You know, that's, that's uh, the, the best. The best question that you had just said was what else had caused it? And, yeah. and that's what those experts probably came up with. Well, it could have been a host of things. That's right. Yeah, it could have been the way. <laughs> and it goes right back to what you said about medical. Yeah, the experts. <laughs> it could have been. It could have been weather. It could have been the weather conditions. It had nothing to do with the epoxy. And even though that's a nice theory, there's nothing to support evidentiary wise. There's nothing to support that that argument that it was the epoxy that caused the column to fall. And um, you know that's that's where that goes. So unfortunately for him and his family. You know, it's kind of a setback. Because really, yeah, I mean, no, absolutely. for the family, too. I mean, they just lost, you know, a father or a husband, and now they've got nothing. Right. Yeah, and it's, it's you, you, you pin your hopes on that, that, that suit, and that just didn't quite work out. Speaking of pinning your hopes on the suit, I'm going to jump a story real quick and come back to it. But uh, sticking with perceived responsibility in public or in a workplace, a Macy's escalator entry is going to claim is going to move forward. Juan and Nora Valdez and their daughter and son, JV and BV, according to the suit, has sued Macy's and ThyssenKrupp Elevator Company in nearly for a nearly a year ago accident, which the injuries occurred at the Garden State Plaza in Paramus, New Jersey, on August 16th. While Nora and her children were riding an escalator in Macy's, her 10-year-old daughter's right foot and leg got trapped, according to the complaint. The child's pinky and second toes had to be amputated, according to the family. Their seven-count federal complaint alleges negligent maintenance and repair of the escalator, negligence in Macy's supervision of the inspector Tissen Group, emotional distress, brief of con- breach of contract, loss of consortium and services, and punitive damages. They piled them on. Now, ThyssenKrupp, they're facing a cross-claim from Macy's, and they moved to dismiss the breach of contract and loss of consortium claims, relying on a three-page excerpt from their deal with Macy's. The company said the Valdez, or the Valdezes, excuse me, were not intended best beneficiaries, meaning they don't owe them anything. Their, their allegiance is going toward Macy's, I assume. So though Macy's opposed the dismissal of the contract claim under certain or uncertain whether plaintiffs were beneficiaries, the store supported dismissal, of course, of the loss of consortium. The court did dismiss the loss of consortium, finding that the, the finding it distinct from their loss of service claim. And you'll have to explain all of this to me, Peter. The mm-hmm. distinction between loss of service and loss of consortium has its roots in the common law developed when children, interestingly enough, began working on the family farm or appeared at the minehead or a factory gate as early as the age of 10. Now, while many states have moved beyond the uh, I don't even know what that word, pecuniary calculation of parental loss, New Jersey remains off-trend in prohibiting loss from consortium claims. The court will follow New Jersey's rulings accordingly. Tyson Krupp's motion to dismiss is granted in part and denied in part, so they're saying, yeah, we'll, we'll dismiss part of it, but we're keeping the rest of it. And this is this is that legalese language, Peter, where, you know, what is consortium? What, <laughs> what is uh, the pecuniary, I'm, I have no idea even how to pronounce that word, calculation right. <laughs> in all this? What goes into figuring this stuff out? All right, so let's and get a little back- yourself. Yeah, let's let's get a little background on this injury. So this is an injury where a, a kid was on an escalator in in a mall that that's you know right around this area here. Uh, and what happened is exactly as you described, she lost some toes. And you know when it happened, there was a lot of of, of negative sort of social media feedback in this area. You know, supervise your kid. What are you doing? You know, putting your toes too close to the to the escalator steps as they as they shut. All these sorts of things. All these, you know, you're gonna find haters everywhere. Oh, sure, sure, sure. But you no, know, 
I think that it's pretty safe to assume that when you go into a mall and you use an escalator, um, it, it should not cut off your toes. That seems pretty safe to assume. So uh, the case has multiple counts. There's seven counts in the complaint, uh, com- you know, total. Uh, negligent repair, negligent supervision of Macy's over the Dyson Group, who is the escalator company, negligent infliction of emotional distress, breach of contract, and then there's this parental loss of consortium and punitive damages um, issue. Now, what's going on here is that in the lawsuit, the plaintiff, who is is uh, represented not just by an attorney, but when you are a minor child, uh, not a minor in a mine, um, which led to the loss of consortium issue. <laughs> and, and, yes, but, there you go. Very good, very good. If you're a minor child, you need to be sort of represented by a guard. They call it a guardian, guardian ad litem, and it's your parent or guardian or a court-appointed guardian who sues on your behalf. And they've sued Macy's and the Tyson Krupp um, elevator company. And so what happens here is Tyson Krupp moves to dismiss only one or two counts of the seven-count complaint, specifically this idea of loss of consortium on behalf of the plaintiff. The parent, though, not the kid. So within this lawsuit, the kid has allegations and is seeking remedies for the loss of the toes, and the parents are also seeking recovery for a loss of consortium claim. Now, what is that? Well, if you are married, uh, for example, and you know you have a wife who, or a husband, not that I'm being sexist, a wife or a husband, sure. who is a, a stay-at-home spouse, and they're doing the dishes, and they're picking up the kids from school. Oh. Uh, <laughs> that, though. They also are providing you with a lot of love and support, and you know you go out on your date nights, that sort of thing. So there's two potential claims here. There's loss of consortium, which is love and you know hugging and you know being together and 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 that sort of thing, more of an emotional type tie. And then there's a loss of services claim. So if you have a let's let's just say it's a wife, and she does all this stuff for you around the house, and she also is a very supportive, loving spouse. And something happens to her, like, for example, she's, she's brain damaged. And now she can no longer give you that love and support, that emotional love and support, nor can she, she do housework. You would have a loss of consortium claim for the emotional elements, and you'd have a loss of services claim. Now, mm. what they're saying here is that you have a loss of services claim because a child, even though you don't like to think of it that way, and it kind of sounds a little crass, a child, you know, you can expect services from them, like taking out the garbage and that sort of thing. So a a loss of services uh, claim can continue. Think of a loss of consortium claim as a loss of companionship. That's really what you want to think about when you're talking about consortium. So it's a distinct difference. Um, It really goes to the emotional end of it. So when you think about the parent's loss, did they lose companionship of their child? The answer is no. So I think the court... Right, because they still have a kid, maybe a a sort of emotionally scarred kid, but for for most people, that kid's going to continue to give you love and, and, and that sort of thing and companionship. 
So I think the court got this one right, knocking out the loss of consortium claim, but leaving the loss of services claim, because that's true. If you've got these missing toes, you're going to have certain issues and physical limitations. And the judge on this one, Catherine Hayden, believe it or not, I've been before her too, and she's also a really, really thoughtful and deliberate judge. There are certain judges out there that you know you would never want to appear before because you know you're going to get something <laughs> doesn't care. But Judge Hayden, and they not, shall remain nameless. <laughs> absolutely, because I'd like to be in, in my job yes, to keep right. my license. But um, yeah, no. But this I thought is a well reasoned uh, decision. But you know when people see these things, the news. Motion to dis to dismiss partially granted. I think there's this this common misconception that the entire case is dismissed, and that's not true. It's one small component of a case that has so many other components in it. And I'll tell you, just based upon experience, they're going to get something. They're most likely going to settle. And what you're going to see as this case progresses, this is one that we should kind of uh, keep on a short list and try to follow up with because it's a very interesting case. Because it goes beyond what the plaintiff's injuries are, you're going to see fighting between Macy's and the elevator uh, escalator company. That's really. I was just going to ask you. We we had talked about that the third party liability or something to that effect last week with um, the U.S. Navy and one of their uh, telemarketers or teletexters. And is that kind of a similar situation here where ThyssenKrupp is really contracted to Macy's and Macy's is the people that hold the overall responsibility, but Tizen Group should have been helping out too. Absolutely, and I would guarantee you that there is, and we can find it out because this is a, a federal court case, so the, the, the documents are accessible by the public uh, very easily. So I think what we should do is kind of keep track of this and look at some of those questions as they come up because I guarantee you there's a contract between Macy's and the elevator company whereby the elevator company has to defend and indemnify Macy's, which is like the Navy case that we were talking about. So if the elevator company has contractually agreed to defend and indemnify Macy's, you would think the brunt of the claim would fall in the elevator company's lap, but the plaintiff has also sued Macy's for negligent supervision of their third-party vendor. Now... You know, the argument is, who sees the escalator every day? The elevator company or Macy's? And it's Macy's. Yeah, good point, yeah, yeah. So this that, is that, that, be, will, that will continue in that direction, yeah. Yeah, this is, has a lot of interesting components because not only does it have the sort of expert witness, personal injury appeal to the case, but it also has this contractual fighting between the two defendants. So it's a real good case. We'll keep... Uh, We'll keep this one on the short list, and we'll come back to it and see how things are developing. That was great. Yeah, because absolutely, you know, you get a lot of small businesses that hire contractors, especially general contractors in construction, and pretty soon you have a lot of shared liability, I'm sure, laying around a job site. Yeah, and, and what do you do? Because, you know, you go and you get a form contract. You ask your buddy who also has the same type of business, what kind of contract do you have? Because nobody wants to spend that money on the on the front end, like mm-hmm. we talk about all the time. And then you're left with a contract that's not appropriate, it's got holes in it, or you've not been prepared for this idea of a negligent supervision claim. So, you know, you've got to, you've got to have, I think, some foresight. If you want to keep your business moving in the forward, positive direction, 
you've got to put that money in the front end. Yeah, absolutely, because you don't know what's going to cost you on the back end. That's right. <laughs> we talk a lot about uh, things happening in schools, and here's no exception, a little interesting story. And, and this is kind of a lot going on in this story. A sub, a substitute teacher, is being cleared of choking a team, but he cannot sue the school. Right up in uh, Peter's neighborhood again, a New Jersey school not liable after a substitute teacher faced assault charges for which he was acquitted after grabbing a student over her phone, a federal judge has ruled. Russell Jenkins, who had been subbing for a 10th grade science class at Orange High School uh, when he ordered several students to turn off their music devices at or about 11 o'clock in the morning on March 6th of 2009. A student described in the court record as SL ignored the command, however, leading Jenkins, then 43, to snatch her phone. As SL jumped up to reach for it, she grabbed his hand. Now, the larger fellow, six foot three, two hundred ninety nine pound man, says he then pushed the fifteen year old SL so that she stumbled and fell back onto the edge of her chair. She then took two skips toward him and swung at him. Once Jenkins deflected the five foot one hundred five pound girl's assault, he spun her around one hundred eighty degrees, picked her up, and carried her into the hallway. According to him, SL, however, maintaining that Jenkins threw his arms around her neck and that she was having a hard time breathing as he carried her into the hallway. And several students, a vice principal, and two security guards say that they saw Jenkins choking or dragging her in a headlock with her arms and legs flailing, quote-unquote, as he likened his grip to a bear hug above her breast area. The school says its cameras, unfortunately, did not record the incident. Now, Jenkins followed orders to release her, and she was escorted to the nurse where she reported two red marks and long scratches on her neck. The school reported the incident to the parents and to the police, and that led to charges being filed for aggravated assault and endangering the welfare of a child. About 10 days later, Jenkins, the teacher, filed juvenile charges against SL for assault as well. Now, unfortunately, the team was arrested. The school board removed Jenkins from, his sub, from their sub list at that time. Jenkins, was a, eventually the teacher, was acquitted of simple assault. He had then taken the action to sue the board, the child, the uh, labeled SL in the complaint, and three officials as well as the city, its police department, and a detective in 2011. The amended complaint alleged false arrest and claims SL was voluntarily dismissed last year, and the U.S. District Judge Kevin McNulty granted the defendant's summary judgment Monday in all counts. There was no due process violation because Jenkins received the full panoply of due process protections to which he's entitled after his arrest, saying that, hey, basically, you got your shot and it has nothing to do with anything else. As for the claims of involuntary servitude and race discrimination, the court found no evidence so much as suggesting that Jenkins was treated differently from other students, or excuse me, other individuals similarly situated. Now, the thing is here, you've got a teacher saying he was wrongfully terminated for something he was acquitted for. And you've got, I, I look at it as a situation of conflicting situations. You're acquitted. Well, if I'm acquitted, then I was wrongfully terminated. What happens here, Peter? Well, this comes back to that police immunity, that municipal immunity that we talked about before. So mm, first okay. of all, this guy, I'm sure that his bear hug above the breast area really was a choke because I don't know what else you've got above the breast area except for him. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, clearly I think that that this guy is insane, and I want to talk about um, about teacher bullying and, and lawsuits stemming from that in a second. But getting back to this, 
So he files what amounts to a civil rights, a civil discrimination, a civil rights uh, discrimination lawsuit. And he has sued the municipality. He's sued the police officers in the school. These are all public entities. So they all fall under the protections of, um, uh, of the, the Tort Claims, Tort Limitation Act, and the immunities afforded to municipal entities. So he must show that he was mistreated, that his civil rights were in fact violated, and then he must go another step further and prove that none of the immunities afforded to the police were in place. So when they talk about the fact that he was provided the uh, full panoply of due process, what they mean is he was Mirandized. He had his Miranda rights read to him. He was given the opportunity to retain an attorney. He wasn't mistreated while he was in police custody. And then the fact that he was fired, um, these these people, these part-time subs, they're typically not contract workers. They're the equivalent of an independent contractor or an at-will employee, and you can be terminated, generally speaking, at any time for any reason because you're not a contract worker. So the school had the right to terminate him. The police did everything right in this case, which is rare, but they did here. And so he had no civil rights claims. He couldn't meet that hurdle, and, uh, and it was dismissed. But, you know, this is, this is what I want to talk about for a second. I have been researching lately because of issues that have arisen um, with a lot of our clients. Believe it or not, a lot of our business clients, you know, these business clients, they, they have some money and they send their kids to these, uh, you know, private schools and things like that. And sure. you think they're going sure. to get better attention, better value, better education, a better class of people, you know, whatever, whatever your reason is. But there's been a slew of lawsuits in the Northeast filed by students against teachers for bullying. And typically, you know, you see these anti-bullying lawsuits where it's um, you know, student against student or student against the school. But these are instances not where a student is bullying another student and the school has failed to do something, but the teacher is bullying the student. And these this, this sort of new string of lawsuit is becoming very popular. So depending upon the actions of this girl, and clearly, you know, this girl in this case is wrong because she tried to assault him, uh, where it didn't seem, based upon the facts, to necessitate an attack. It's, I don't think she was defending herself at that point. But sure. um, if she had been, if, the, if it had been slightly different in a factual context, um, she would have been able to file a lawsuit against him. Some of these lawsuits against teacher bullying really involve a teacher that singles out a student, that humiliates a student in front of the class, that is uh, kicking desks or throwing things on the desk. Um, and, and, you know, it's really a shame because the schools are supposed to educate the kids about bullying against each other, yet the teachers <laughs> feel as though they can do whatever they want. And it's I know it's a, a, a wild generalization, but, you know, you see this all the time where the teacher seems to be untouchable, and the teacher's doing the same things that you wouldn't want your kids doing to another kid. So, I, you know, don't understand why teachers do these things. 
Well, that's you know, there's there's that old school mentality, and and I'll admit I have it as well that uh, you know things were different then, and kids don't act the same way they used to, and that brings I would think a greater responsibility upon the teacher and the education system to handle that child differently because of you know you're if you don't you're going to get sued. Yeah, yeah, and you know what you've got to you got to have some common sense as. Uh... As an educator in today's world, you really do. You know, just because you're frustrated, you're having a bad day, it doesn't give you the right to mistreat a child. You know, I, I, I remember going, I went to a private high school, and uh, I remember having a teacher that got so frustrated because this other student was tormenting him, and the kid really was tormenting him, that he picked him up and put him through a plate glass window um, and and ultimately was fired. There you know was some threats of lawsuits, but nothing ever came of it. But that was a different time. You know those those instances yeah. were far between. But now it seems as though you have a lot of teachers who are getting into the field that maybe shouldn't be teachers. Either they've been in the profession for too long, or they expected something different when they thought they'd become a teacher, and now they take out their frustrations on the students. I know there's no way I could become a, a teacher today. I don't. I would not have the patience. No, you've got to be the right there's kind no of person. Way. I think it takes it takes the uh, the right kind of person to be honest with yourself and say, "Listen, maybe I'm not able to find the career that I've really longed for, but I'm not going to just opt to be a teacher simply because it's something I can do. Because maybe I don't you have summers off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly." Because I don't have the patience. I mean, you really, if you're going to be an educator, you have to love what you're doing. And if you're old and tired and you think that, it, that you know, you, you're done with the kids, then get out and go do something else. Don't make the kids sure. miserable. <laughs> no, it's, I've got enough going on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll stick on students, actually. Um, NCAA students, college kids. The U.S. Supreme Court has not taken up rights of publicity in decades. Looks like it won't consider the issue anytime soon. Supreme Court on Thursday denied video game maker Electronic Arts bid to appeal a Ninth Circuit ruling for a class of college athletes led by former Nebraska and Arizona State quarterback Sam Keller. Keller sued the NCAA and EA, Electronic Arts, in 2009 for using his image and likeness to increase profits for its NCAA-branded football and basketball video games. Electronic Arts and its licensing company in June reached a $40 million settlement with current and former players whose images were used in NCAA-branded video games. Starting in January of 2005, the NCAA agreed to a $20 million settlement with players a few weeks later. The Ninth Circuit's three-judge panel found two-to-one that EA cannot hide behind First Amendment protections for artistic creations since avatars of players are basically lifelike as possible. The fact that EA elected to use avatars that mimic real college football players for a reason, the opinion was written. If AR, or excuse me, if AE did not think there was a value to having the avatar designed to mimic each individual player, it would not go to the lengths it does to achieve realism in this regard. Judge J. Bybee wrote for the majority. This thing's been on the—I don't say the docket, but it's been on people's tongues and minds for years is the ncaa finally going to have to pay up i think so and you know what is is really interesting that stems out of this what does this do for manuel uh, noriega and his claims against the call of duty franchise <laughs> sure sure Remember? 
We talked about him. Yes, Michael, absolutely. Because he has a similar claim. My image and likeness is in there, and um, you know I'm the villain in this, and it's not right, and I should be compensated for it. Well, I think the NCAA is going to be a little bit different than uh, Noriega. I think that EA probably did did wrong. I mean, you know, you can't use somebody's image and likeness for commercial purposes without permission. And you know, you know, I mean, avatars—they're—they're they're right. I mean, the the judge got it right. Um, avatars are designed to be as as closely um, resembling the person that they're mimicking as possible. You know, you wouldn't want right. a game that didn't have life-like features to it. So, I think that um, you know that that the judge called it right. I think that EA shouldn't do this now. You know what EA thinks to themselves? Well, look how much money we made on these games. So (laughs) we're paying out a $20 million settlement uh, or whatever it might be. But how much money have we really lost? And I bet you they're laughing all the way to the bank. Sure, sure. But you know, they may it, even have a fund set up in their accounting to cover such. We figure they have consequential damages for future uh, problems. They probably they, they they probably fund something to to uh, pay for that. Oh, there's always a reserve outside of, outside of insurance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, when you've got a big company like this, there's always a reserve that just sits there waiting for you know whatever um, litigation they believe is going to to come up. Uh, big stores like Home Depot, they have a reserve. They just, they they stock this, you know, stock this money aside because they know it's going to happen. Um, just one disclaimer: if Noriega is listening to this broadcast, this does not mean <laughs> that you are going to be able to settle for twenty million dollars. I think that <laughs> your crimes perhaps will prevent you from being successful in a lawsuit, but give it your best shot. Call me. <laughs> no, please don't call me. I've got enough problems. I do not want to where you're calling me. Uh, Peter, Panamanian Strongman is on line seven for you. <laughs> what? No, thank you. Got my. Uh, own. Well, don't put them up at the. <laughs> get your own problems. Oh, well, don't put him up at the Marriott when he comes to town. He could won't be able to get online to find anything out. Yeah. Marriott has been fined six hundred thousand dollars. Oops, by the FCC for blocking guests' Wi-Fi. Now this isn't simply turning it off. This is a different situation. CNN telling us the Marriott has agreed to pay a six hundred thousand dollar fine after the FCC found the company blocked consumer Wi-Fi networks last year during an event at a hotel and conference center in Nashville. They blocked the consumers' Wi-Fi networks. At the same time, Marriott was charging exhibitors and others as much as $1,000 per device to access the hotel's wireless network, the FCC announced on Friday. A federal investigation of the Gaylord Opryland Resort and Convention Center in Nashville found that Marriott employees had used, quote, containment features of a Wi-Fi monitoring systems, unquote, at the hotel to prevent people from accessing their own personal Wi-Fi networks. In March of 2013, the FCC received a complaint from someone who had attended an event at the Gaylord Opryland and claimed the hotel was jamming mobile hotspots so that you couldn't use them in the convention space, the FCC statement read. Federal law prohibits people from using any device that interferes with cellular, GPS, or Wi-Fi networks. It's the first time the FCC has investigated a hotel property for blocking a guest's Wi-Fi, according to a senior FCC official with knowledge of the case. The unlawful blocking isn't jamming in the traditional sense. 
where someone use a, uh, uh, they use a jammer device to block wireless signals. Instead, Marriott employees were using the hotel's own Wi-Fi system to block other people's hotspots, the FCC said. How they did that, I don't know. But basically, you know, people bring these MiFi uh, hotspots around or they've got their phone uh, set up to use as a hotspot. They were blocking those devices, forcing the, uh, uh, the attendees to pay to use the hotels. So you can't do that, guys. No, you really can't. You know, uh, five, six years ago, I remember going to hotels, and it was always something where you had to pay for access to the Wi-Fi service. Right. Right, right. you know, and it was just commonplace. You'd pay $10, $15 a day to get access to a Wi-Fi network. But now these hotels, in order to keep up with everybody else, because you can pick up a Wi-Fi signal almost anywhere, they're sure. offering free Wi-Fi. I mean, if you go to a hotel and they don't have free Wi-Fi, you're going to think twice if you're on a business trip staying there. So, oh, absolutely. You know, you, you go with this intention of free Wi-Fi. We're going to have a seminar. We're going to have a business meeting. I'm going there on a business trip as an individual. And, you know, I've experienced this myself where you go in, and what I've seen lately is they have free Wi-Fi, but the bandwidth is so... Oh, it's horrible. <laughs> yes. So you can't get on. It takes you forever to download anything. And they have these now pay options where if you want to stream movies or you want to download mm-hmm. files, now you've got to pay for it. So I think that is acceptable because they're providing what they're saying they're providing. But when you go so far as to interrupt the ability of people who pay for a standalone device, whether it's from your phone company or whatnot, uh, that's where you start breaking the law. And I think that the reason that this is so you know important or the arguments that that are being presented are essentially as a consumer you pay Verizon or AT&T or Sprint for your Wi-Fi hotspot access and if you're going to generate a hotspot and you're paying them for it why should somebody else interfere with your ability to use that and that's what's sure. going on Now is that going to turn into a class action lawsuit Peter you think you know, it depends on whether or not there's a private cause of action. And you'd have to look at it. I think that most likely, um, you know, it's going to be something that will probably stay within the administrative confines of the government's confines. I don't know that there's a private right of action. Without looking into that, I'm going to say that there probably isn't a private right of action and that the government's authority and fine is probably going to be the extent of it. But the end of it. Yeah, I wouldn't I would not hesitate though to to think that there are plaintiffs attorneys out there who are now having <laughs> their clients run around to every hotel imaginable. You know, I, I know a lawyer like this. He'll, you know, set <laughs> claims up and it's like so ridiculous. You know, it's what gives lawyers a bad name, but he'll have people go out and, you know, try this, do that. Let's see if we can file a claim. And and that's what I, I can just only imagine what they're doing. We're going to stay, you know, <laughs> this hotel and this hotel and this hotel and see which one Wi-Fi doesn't work because then I'm going to sue them. Sure. As far as if you have any receipts from anything, there's no way you can go back and get, hey, by the way, I was staying at the Marriott that day. You, are you going to give me my money back now? There's, because there's a lack of a, a private, um, uh, uh, lack of a class action, private responsibility, right. I think is what you said. Um, there's no way you're getting your money back. No, and you know, you've got to prove it too. And you're dealing with technology, and what do you need to prove that? But an expert witness, because you saying, hey, I couldn't get on the Wi Fi that day, uh, they're blocking my network. 
Well, you've got to prove that. Could be a host of problems. Yeah, it could be. You could be you know, not using your device properly. There could have been a, a tower. Who knows what? But it might not have been intentional. But you have to prove that. So, Right. <laughs> well, speaking of not intentional, you'd like to hope. And this, is, this story carries with me an interesting question, which I will ask it after I've read through it. Uh, Patch.com telling us about a sperm bank which is being sued for mistakenly sending a white woman a black man's sperm. Of course, unfortunately, you can't look at it and, and, and tell the difference. An Ohio mom is suing a sperm bank in Downers Grove for giving her and her partner the wrong sperm, leading to the birth of a mixed-race child two years ago. Jennifer Cramblett, 36, sued this week in Cook County Circuit Court, alleging breach of warranty and wrongful birth against Midwest Sperm Bank. Cramblett reviewed sperm donors' profiles at length in 2011 before deciding on the one she and her same-sex partner, Amanda Zinkin, wanted. Now, donor number 380 was the number of that particular donor, whose physical features resemble Amanda's, and instead, Midwest Sperm Bank sent her a vial with an African-American's man, excuse me, African-American man's donor sperm. We'll call him donor number 330. Cramblett and her partner of eight years were raising, are, excuse me, are raising their two-year-old mixed-race child, uh, da- their daughter Peyton, in Uniontown, Ohio, which is a small town of 2,800 people outside of Akron. They say they are concerned about the intolerance that could affect their child in this all-white community, describing the situation as stressful and difficult. We'll get to that comment later. Cramblett's fertility doctor in Ohio recommended Midwest Sperm Bank. Cramblett ordered the sperm by phone in 2011, and the lawsuit alleges that at one point a sperm bank employee told Cramblett she was ordering donor 330. Cramblett corrected her and said, no, uh, oh, you're right, I see you are ordering number 380, according to the suit. She ordered six vials. Now, Cramblett's attorneys say the sperm bank's records are handwritten. <laughs> That's another joke there waiting to happen. And the numbers were misread. Now, in April of 2012, after becoming pregnant, Jennifer and Amanda decided they would order more, eventually you know, thinking about maybe having a second child. Cramblett called Midwest Sperm Bank to replace the order, according to the lawsuit, and the receptionist asked her if she had requested an African-American donor. She said at that point, no, why would I request that? My partner and I are, are Caucasian. You know that from our profile. It was in that phone call that she was told the sperm bank sent the doctor vials from donor number 330. Now, they're seeking a financial judgment that will allow Jennifer, Amanda, and Peyton to move to a more diverse, tolerant community. The lawsuit asks for damages in the amount of $50,000. My question here is they're not hetero and so they're already going to face some intolerance what's the difference it's a child notwithstanding the lack of the fact that i ordered this and i got this had she gone through the drive-thru she would have got the same response right here's the best part though this this is what i can't get out of my head as this kid grows up oh by the way mommy and mommy didn't really want you you're not the right we're very tolerant people Fortunately, you're a little too dark for our taste. So yeah, and unfortunately, when, when it comes to your race, we're, we're intolerant. That yeah. that this, I mean, I absolutely understand that they ordered one thing and they got another, and they do some form of something. But maybe they sh- and, and maybe making the case was to say that they live in an intolerant community and they needed to move money to move from it. I wouldn't think they need that. I just think you know, you messed it up. You're paying me. 
Yeah, I don't know that that claim actually succeeds because, number one, you're going to have to prove that it's an intolerant community. So unless the community members and the, um, you know, the local town officials are all Ku Klux Klan members, I'm having a hard time figuring out how she's going to prove that the community is intolerant. Sure. You know? Yeah. So that's an issue. Now, you know, taking, taking her side for a second, I do understand the contractual. And here's where the law is just so screwed up. You know, you're not even considering the emotional aspects of this. You've got to look at it as a lawyer uh, on the facts. And the facts are that you sign an agreement with somebody, you ask for one thing, and you don't get it, and they've made a mistake. Right. Perhaps it shouldn't have been handwritten labels because there's that, that, that ability to uh, misinterpret somebody else's handwriting. There are so many facets to this. So from a legal standpoint, you look at it and you say, you didn't get what you paid for. But you know what that does is it makes this, this poor kid a number, a thing. It's like, you know, I ordered a cheeseburger and you gave me a bacon double. That's not what I wanted. Same thing here. Right. You know, I ordered a white kid and I didn't get it. And then you have all these, these parents who can't have kids, who are desperate. They would take anything. They would take a black, right. yellow, you know, black and yellow, purple, whatever it is, child, just to have a child. And it seems to me to be a little bit offensive. I understand they're mad, but offensive in a sense that, you know, they put this kid in the spot where this is all public record. And this kid will one day read what his mommies did to him, him or her, whatever it was. It's not right. But at the same time, from a legal standpoint, they do have a case. Oh, absolutely. In agreeing with you 100% on the legality of the case, yeah. In, had, I, had it happened to me, I think I would sue for a dollar and just get them to pay themselves, or, you know, finance themselves to getting out of a hand, handwritten situation. Fix the problem yeah. versus fixing my perceived issue because I don't have an issue. I have a great kid. It doesn't matter to me, but somebody else might have a problem. You should fix that. And maybe that's the only way they're going to get it fixed. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's, it's tough. So, it's, you know, I think it's, it's tough. And I think that the argument, I mean, it, the argument she makes makes me not like them. Likewise. Yeah. Likewise. Exactly. I think the same exact way. Um, and that's unfortunate. Uh, hopefully it will turn out. Hopefully the kid will grow up to be every bit as successful and happy as any other child in any other community. Um, <laughs> and hopefully won't end up like this poor woman, spending months in jail for SpaghettiOs. And you say, what? Well, it's kind of a weird story out of Georgia. A woman spent a month in jail because police refused to believe that the residue on her spoon wasn't meth. Turns out it was actually the remnants of SpaghettiOs which makes me wonder what's in SpaghettiOs, uh, which the woman had eaten earlier in the day. Now, of course, when the crime lab analysis of the spoon came back for negative methamphetamine, the district attorney's office was forced to drop charges against the woman. According to the, arrest, to the arrest report, 23-year-old Ashley Huff was a passenger in a car that was pulled over for a traffic violation. Inside the car, officers found a bag with Huff's name on it. Asked if they could search it. Apparently, she said yes. Inside the bag, police reported finding a glass smoking device as well as a spoon with a clear crystal-like substance on it. Huff told police the substance was sauce from the SpaghettiOs she had eaten earlier in the day, but the report described Huff as nervous with sores on her face, arms, and legs. After a field test on the substance from the spoon tested positive for meth, Huff was arrested. 
After being released, Huff missed her pretrial hearing, and that gave police a false name, which landed her in additional trouble. And now she couldn't afford to pay her, her bond, so she's now free. Huff is also now considering legal action against the police and the district attorney's office for false arrest and malicious prosecution. Under Section 1983 of the U.S. Code, it is unlawful for anyone acting under the authority of the government to deprive a person of his or her civil rights. Um, my, my biggest question is what is SpaghettiOs made of? I agree. There's a reason why my mother <laughs> eating SpaghettiOs. Now we know. In, in all seriousness, um, is is where's the breakdown here, Peter? I mean, it says that they tested it positive on scene for for meth. Was there meth on the spoon, or was this person really de- denied her civil rights because of SpaghettiOs? And doesn't it make you wonder what Chef Boyardee really does in his free time? <laughs> I'm not even going to go any further on that. <laughs> so here's, looking here's, for another real, job. Yeah, here's the real issue, right? I have seen in, in defending uh, police officials and, and municipalities and, and, you know, prior um, sort of prior, prior life, I've seen police do things that, you know, I know it's hard to believe, but that aren't right. And if yeah. they look at somebody and they see somebody and they've profiled them, whether it's racial or otherwise, oftentimes these test results can come back in ways that are incorrect. So <laughs> this is SpaghettiOs. How it tests positive for meth is beyond me. The only thing I can say is somebody either completely screwed up and it just is coincidental that they were able to produce meth results, or this was done as intentional. You know, you have a police officer who has a good um, relationship with the lab or with whoever else they're going to be dealing with, and they say, look, just test this. I'm sure it's meth. And then you've got somebody lazy at the lab who says, yeah, it looks like it. Um, And then they say, that's what it is. So in, in this case, does she have a civil rights claim? What about those immunities that we've talked about? And I'm going to suggest mm-hmm. I think she's got a case here because... Because of the profiling aspect of it? Because of the profiling and because it was SpaghettiOs testing positive for meth. That seems to be something that uh, would probably exceed the immunities. You know, if you... Maybe a, she, she doesn't swallow pills well and she crushes Sudafed into her SpaghettiOs to fix her allergies. It could be. It could be. <laughs> I think, though, that this is just, uh, you know, it's unfortunate, though, because, you know, it sounds like she had an acne condition. She liked canned spaghetti, and she's being penalized for that. You know? Right, right. He says, you know, she was nervous. Well, if a police officer pulls me over, I'm nervous, too, and I'm a lawyer. Sure. I don't want a ticket. You, know, you see those those flashing lights, and the first thing you say is, oh, crap. You know, and then I'm thinking about, how much money this is going to cost me? What did I do? You know, then I start thinking to myself, right. the crazy things. Did I rob a bank and didn't know it? You know, did I hold somebody hostage and didn't know it? And I have all these crazy thoughts in my head. So, of course, you're nervous when a police officer pulls you over. Now, why she's <laughs> carrying around a spoon with SpaghettiO residue on it, that's another story. But I, I think she might have a claim. Again, you know, not against the law, though. <laughs> no, a month in jail, though, that's a long time when you've done nothing sure. wrong. Yeah. For being nervous. Well, well, 
having acne and SpaghettiOs, you go to jail. <laughs> Make your life choices carefully. Uh, <laughs> chicken soup. Um, <laughs> we'll keep it young, a teen. Uh, you know, Peter, when you were younger, did you have a house party? You ever have, a, you ever have your friends over? Maybe do some things you probably weren't supposed to be doing when your parents were gone. I had friends over, but I honestly can tell you, I never had a house party because I was so afraid <laughs> that something would go wrong. I just never would. Likewise. Yeah, try and replace something that, that get, gets broken, or worse yet, try to explain it. Yeah. So, we're not all, uh, what was the, uh, Tom Cruise, geez, like a risky business. Risky business. Uh, for a teenager hosting a, <laughs> hosting a party while his parents were out of town, having the cops show up is typically the worst possible scenario. Cops, run! But one teenager in, uh, I, <laughs> no. Get rid of the spaghetti. Yeah, that's right. Payallop, Washington, not only welcomed the arrival of the police to his out of control house party last weekend, he was the one that called him after 70 kids from 11 high schools began destroying his house and running amok in his neighborhood, according to Seattle's KOMO TV. According to a press release on Pierce County's website, police responded to the party, arrested 27 people, ages 15 to 24 minors in possession of alcohol and another 18 year old on an outstanding DUI warrant typically issued when a DUI suspect fails to appear in court. Police were also um, saying that the beer and liquor bottle strewn house had a strong odor of marijuana in Washington. What'd you expect? In addition to arrests, police warned that parents who leave their children home unattended over the weekend may face civil liability for injuries, crimes, or property destruction that occurs as a result of an out-of-control party. Parents may potentially find themselves negligent in a number of ways, such as premise liability, social host liability, and negligent supervision. And we'll have Peter go through all of those because, you know, it used to be, hey, go to Johnny's house. His parents are having a party. They collect your keys. You can get drunk. Not a problem. I would never do that today. I might have 20 or 30 years ago, but not now. No, no. Hey, you know, um, what, one thing that, that I think the is, laws have changed. <laughs> yeah. One thing that's missing from the story is the fact, though, that this kid, yeah, he had a party. He he made a mistake, but he actually took responsibility and called the police. And uh, you know, I think true. a lot of kids out there that would, would never call the police and then things would get really out of hand. But, I mean, you got to give the kid some credit um, for doing what he did. Yeah, that's true. That's but, you know, yeah, yeah, recognizing the problems were out of control. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think you know, to to the extent that you can give him some credit, there you go, kid. Um, premises liability. The first thing that you mentioned, you know, you are inviting people onto your property, and there's these different de- designations. Whether you're an invitee, you're a social guest, business guest, however your state is going to sort of determine who you are, what your status is when you enter into somebody's property. But when you are a social guest asked to come into the property in most states, you have a a very um, reduced duty or obligation to keep your premise, premises safe from, you know, sort of, of, of risks that, um, you know, might exist on the property. And what do you mean by a risk? Well, a sinkhole, you know, that you are aware of in the backyard, a swimming pool that's uncovered. So you've got this, this reduced risk, but... What happens when you've got um, social guests coming over that are unauthorized? What's going to happen if there's injuries to those kids? You're going to get sued by the parents. The parents are going to sue you. Your homeowner's insurance might not cover the claim 
because it wasn't an authorized party. It was a, you know, you, the parent, could be deemed to be negligent. So, you know, this, this whole legal battle would ensue, and you might have no coverage from your homeowners, an injured or, or worse dead kid, and then that's a problem. But then what about other people's property that are affected, cars, windows, lawns, you know, whatever you, you might have out there, they're affected too. So premises liability is a huge issue, and it's just not confined to your property. Then you've got this idea of the, the social host liability. You as a parent, if you are aware of a party, if you should have been aware of a party, if you have alcohol at a party, all those things are bad. But now it's sort of evolving into if you leave your kids home and they do something wrong, you're at fault. The same way we talked about if you leave your kids in the car, it's very similar. So, you know, they want to be able to pin liability on you for whatever you do. Um, You know, in the past it used to be that if you left the kid home alone and the kid had a party, you as the parent – if you didn't know or shouldn't have known, you'd have no parental liability or responsibility. It was deemed to be more of an intentional act of the kid. You had no control. But nowadays, it's not like that. Nowadays, they want to blame the parents for absolutely everything, and there's liability that is connected to that. So that social host liability, right, if you're the parent hosting the party and collecting the keys and serving alcohol, you're going you're gonna to be done. done. Yeah, and then there's the idea of negligent supervision. Remember the case that we talked about? We've talked about it a few times. The mom that was working and her kid was involved in a neo-Nazi group. Remember that Ah, one? Yes, yes, yes. You know, just to refresh everybody's recollection real quick, mom, single mom, working full-time, had a kid who got involved in a neo-Nazi group invited a girl over, they invited her out into the woods, they beat her up, they raped her, all sorts of bad things. And then the um, the girl's parents sued the mother for negligent supervision. Now, the mother wasn't even home. She was working full-time. What, you know, what do you want to do? How can I support my child because I'm a single mom and, and then be liable for negligent supervision? But they tried to argue that the kid had Nazi posters, he had Mein Kampf, he had a picture of Hitler... And all of those things should have been trigger, triggers to the mother um, that it would be reasonably foreseeable that he's involved in a neo-Nazi group. But that, that mom had coverage provided because the argument in her support was even if she knew that he was involved in the neo-Nazi political movement, and this has nothing to do with saying neo-Nazis are right, this is a factual issue, even though you're involved in a neo-Nazi political movement, that doesn't mean it was foreseeable that you would trick somebody to come to your house, go over to the woods, and then beat the crap out of them. So, sure. you know, there's that issue here. But negligent supervision is such a huge topic and a huge area of liability for parents. You leave your kid in the car unattended, negligent supervision. You leave your kid home unattended, negligent supervision. Kid has a party, you're negligent, you know? All sorts of things that that can create this negligent supervision. It's such a broad topic now, and I think that um, for some reason it's it's really developed over the years, where parents are to blame for everything, 
and you know you you need somebody to sue. So let's sue the parents. And I'm not saying leave your kids home and, and with alcohol. It's not right at all. But you've got to be able to balance when does somebody go too far? Because the suits that we've talked about, where parents leave their kids in the backyard in a, in a fenced-in yard, and you've got some nosy neighbor saying, hey, this kid's out in, in the backyard by themselves, negligent supervision, let's call DIFUS, let's call, you know, that's that's insane. Sure. There's got to be a balance. Well, and, and something you yeah, no, and something you said, you know, they're holding parents more and more responsible, yet parents have more and more tools taken away from them now than ever before in how to yeah. raise children. So, Absolutely. <laughs> no, lock up your children and don't let them go anywhere and you'll be just fine. Yeah. Oh, you know, well, about the, the tool issue, because I don't know, maybe it was six months ago, seven months ago, there was a ruling in New York concerning corporal discipline of a kid. And the lawsuit mm-hmm. that was filed, it was a criminal action filed about a parent who who spanked his kid. And that parent was, was you know, charged with all sorts of, of child endangerment and abuse and then all sorts of things in criminal courts. And what New York said is that it wasn't excessive, that you are allowed to, to discipline your child in a corporal manner so long as it was not unreasonable or excessive. And in that case, it was deemed that a spanking of a kid for being disrespectful to another adult was not unreasonable, nor was it excessive. But there are other states in this country that don't view it that way. And the minute you sure. spank your kid, and I, I don't spank my kids. I am not advocating corporal punishment for your kids. But there are a variety of tools that are not as excessive as maybe corporal punishment that are also being taken away. You, you, you're going to see lawsuits stemming from um, abusive talking to a child. That, that's going to be something you're going to see soon, where a parent's yelling at a kid, and the kid's going to turn around and go to the police and say, my mother yelled at me, or you know, she used profanity, and she should be arrested, or I should be removed. You're going to see those lawsuits. Sure, and someone will, pick, someone will apply the law and say, yeah, you know, you're right. Let's, let's go forward with this, and it's going to change everything. Yep. So um, the best thing to do, like I say, just... You know, and the funny thing is, you know, common sense prevails in a lot of stuff, Peter, as you well know. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I personally, I keep very little alcohol in the house. Um, but as my children get older and become more aware of what they can and can't get away with, I'm probably not going to. Yeah. You know, but it's it's you probably know, just, a smart decision. Yeah, yeah, and, and I do it more out. You know, I have I have two daughters. You know, you start to think about you know premise liability and social host liability. I absolutely will not allow um, children to stay over at my house because I don't. Not that I, I I worry that I'm going to do something. You don't know what the other party is going to do. You don't you know don't, what's happened. You don't know what they and bring into your house. Yeah, I just I prefer it. Not to happen. If if we have children over, it, it, my wife has to be here. That's just the way we've decided to handle it because we don't want to put ourselves in a position for someone else to take advantage of. What's the old uh, adage? Don't confuse my kindness for weakness. Right. Um, because we just don't want the problems, and so we've made a conscious decision not to put ourselves in that position. And, and, and it's and unfortunate. It is unfortunate. It's very smart what you're doing, but it's also at the same time so sad that as a culture, this is where we've, we've come to. Here we are, sure. and you can't even have your kids have friends over to the house, 
without worrying that, you know, if you've got girls over and you're a guy, you're the father, you shouldn't be there because of potential issues that might arise. It's right, just right. so unfortunate. But this is where we live today. And I think you either accept it or you refuse to accept it. And then you find yourself facing liability. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, well, we'll kind of shift gears a little bit from a liability and talk a little bit about uh, the environment. California, they have passed a law banning the bag. USAToday.com telling us that environmentalists' efforts to encourage reusable shopping bags got a big boost Tuesday when California became the first state to ban most plastic bags at grocery and convenience stores. And the little bags that you carry out with the handles, spurred by concerns about the ubiquitous plastic grocery bag as a pollution threat, Governor Jerry Brown on Tuesday signed into law legislation banning the bag in July of 2015. Los Angeles, San Francisco, and scores of other local governments in California and elsewhere around the country already have passed or implemented similar bans as a way to encourage reusable bags and cut down on the discarding of plastic bags, which are clogging waterways and washing into the ocean. California becomes the first state to enact a statewide ban. Ban, excuse me. The American Progressive Bag Alliance, which is the industry's lobby group, of course, said the law would jeopardize jobs and lead to higher charges to consumers by grocers. It said a majority of plastic bags are reused by consumers of, for disposing trash, cleaning up after pets, and other uses. The new law applies to plastic bags provided at checkout of large grocery stores and supermarkets starting in July 2015 and will extend to convenience stores and drug stores the following year. It does not apply to bags used for produce and meat or for purchases at non-food retailers. So one kind of bag is okay and the other kind of bag is not. But um, in a nutshell, I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm a capitalist. I'm pretty hardcore in that direction, but I get this. I get it, but you know what? I think that you know what, what what I see a lot by by me is you can go into the store and if you carry out your own bag, if you bring in your own uh, reusable fabric or cloth bag, you get I don't know what it is five cents, ten cents, a quarter, yeah, whatever. It's the incentive, sure. Right. So the incentive is is there for you to save a few dollars because you're using your own bag. Um, I I don't know. I mean, you really want to save the environment? Tell big business to stop polluting. Tell you know some of these big corporations <laughs> that have major lobbyists in in Washington to stop dumping in the waterways. I just you know I don't, I don't know. You're not going to get rid of plastic bags or sandwich bags. You're not going to get rid of plastic. I I, I get it. I get it. But I just think that maybe we should be doing something else with our time. I don't know. You know because I. I <laughs> Sure. I've reused the, the plastic bags. I've put them in, you know, maybe a, a small office garbage can or in the bathroom mm-hmm. or something. So I don't oh, know. Oh, yeah, there's a ton, ton of ways to reuse them. You know, I, 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 you know, you talk about, you know, you get five cents off or something. Make it a buck. You know, if you're yeah. going to use one of our bags, we're going to charge you a buck. Now you've got my attention. Right. <laughs> and then do it that way. Because you know what? I'm a big believer in, in less law. I don't want to see somebody telling me that now I can't use a plastic bag. I would rather they sure. say, like you said, here's a, a major incentive to use it, and then ultimately when people no longer need it, it dies out. But, you know, I don't know. To say to me you can't use a plastic bag, there's no more plastic bags, I, I, don't, I don't really want to be told that right now. I'm not I ready actually, for that. I ask for, <laughs> I ask for paper generally because I, I, can, I can use paper the same 
methodology for, for plastic and, and I could burn paper, which is, I don't know if that's worse than clogging a waterway or not these days. You can't, you know, you can't burn things, but it's, it's more biodegradable. That's the way I look at it. Um, if there was an incentive for me, like I said, if, if I went to the, new, the grocery store and they said, hey, it's a buck per bag, would you like a bag? I'd say, I'll, I'll bring one next time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, so, I agree. I, yeah, I use paper yeah. only because it's stronger. At least I've sure. heard it. But I don't yeah. know. I just don't be at least, I, I, I get it, but I, I understand what you're saying. You don't like to be, be, be legislated into making the decision. Right. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, we'll see how we'll see if it. You know, I guess the thing is, you know, it's it's a progressive idea, and progressivism. If it spreads, then I guess maybe it was a good idea. If it doesn't, then it wasn't. Well said. <laughs> well, we'll see. <laughs> and on to the, <laughs> the 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 highlight, the pinnacle of our law review week. How do you say this gal's name? Judas? Judice, but they've also pronounced Judice. So I'm not I, I see, I see Judice. Yeah, but uh, well, Teresa, well, we'll call her Judice. I suppose Teresa Judice, sentenced to 15 months in prison on fraud charges. Um, I like a lot about this decision. Before I even get into the story, I like a lot of how this judge handled this. Uh, Teresa Judice will serve 15 months in prison for fraud. Judge Esther Salas announced on Thursday her husband Joe will serve, not Joe Salas, Joe Judice, will serve another 41 months as well. Now, Teresa, 42, also received two years of probation and will surrender her surrender for her sentence on January 5th. So how nice she can spend the holidays with her family. The Real Housewives of New Jersey star's legal troubles came to a head in July of 2013 when her and her husband were charged in a 39-count indictment that included conspiracy to commit mail and wire fraud, bank fraud, making false statements on loan applications, and bankruptcy fraud. Teresa will serve her first sentence, followed then by Joe. The judge said multiple times that Joe is facing imminent deportation following his sentence. Joe was sentenced to 41 months on four counts, plus 12 months on an additional count to be served concurrently. He'll also get two years of probation. He'll have to pay $414,000 to Wells Fargo Bank, plus $10,000 in fine. He will be able to surrender himself when, I guess, the sentencing commences. Now, the judge telling Teresa, for a moment, I thought about probation, but I think a period of confinement is absolutely necessary in this case, she said. I don't honestly believe that you understand or respect the law. I need to send a message in the eyes of the law. It doesn't matter who you are. There are consequences to pay. I love this judge for that alone. Plus, she is thinking about the kid's. Uh, a, a bit on this one, allowing the the, the uh, Teresa to serve first. Then, when she gets out, Joe can come in and serve his uh, sentence. So the kids won't be without a parent. I like right. that. Like I really like this judge. No, she's a good judge, and and like I said, I've I've been before her before in other cases, and she is very uh, thoughtful and, and and I think a good judge. But I think I think a few things to take away from from this. First of all, <laughs> you know you cannot lie. In bankruptcy court, you just cannot do it. And I've seen, even on some low-level bankruptcies, people conveniently forget certain assets. You can't do that. That's number one. And the, the other thing to take away from this is, 
if you are going to be a reality star, if you're going to put yourself out there, and it doesn't need to be network reality, it could be you have a YouTube channel. If you're doing something wrong, don't bring attention to it. You know, you yeah. put yourself out there. <laughs> One of the things that the judge talked about in her decision was the fact that you see you, you yourselves on TV. You've got this wealth. You've got this gigantic mansion and all this furniture and all this stuff. And where did it all come from? It, was it legally obtained? Was it illegally obtained? Is it all through fraud? And so I think that that set the tone. I think that uh, it's, it's actually somewhat sad because I don't think that Teresa truly understood what was going on. I don't think that she's a nice woman, and I don't know her personally, but from what they, they show on TV, um, she does not seem to be mentally capable of, of committing this fraud. <laughs> trying to say it in a nice way. She that she could be that clever. I think she did whatever he told her to do. Yeah, yeah. complicit, and, and, sure. Right. And I think that the, the big factor here is that during the, the pre-sentencing period, there were some uh, R, RVs, recreational vehicles, and some other assets that were not disclosed and I don't know if it was the attorney's decision representing them or it was their decision. And I think that the judge got very upset with the fact that they, they still hadn't come to terms with, we've done something wrong, we've got to fess up. And so that's really what I think drove the decision to give Teresa jail time. Had they <laughs> disclosed this, I think it might have been a different story because they really don't think – I honestly don't think that the judge wanted to put her in jail – I think she was looking for reasons to give her probation because nobody wants to do that to a family. But unfortunately, she did it. Now, interesting is going to be what happens when Joe finally gets out of jail. The minute he gets out of jail, he will be deported. Yeah, I, I, I didn't understand that. I mean, obviously, they're married. Um, and so I assume one of them could be a U.S. citizen naturally, naturally, but... I didn't she's understand how it worked. Citizen. And he's not. He's mm -hmm. a he's a, a citizen of Italy, and he okay. never never went through any of the formal channels to uh, to, to uh. become a legal resident. And so, uh. in a case like this that received national attention, um, you know, the judge's reputation's on the line, the government's reputation's on the line. What are they going to do with this? Can we allow a non-legalized person to remain in? country how can the government allow him to stay <laughs> and then everybody said well wait a minute joe got to stay we should stay too so i thought you know, that i would work it the other way <laughs> <laughs> i would i would everybody else gets to stay i'm joe i want to stay <laughs> yeah yeah but you know what's going to happen yeah. he will be he will be deported he won't even be able to get out of jail to his house before they're shipping him off. That's the way it's going to work. And wow. then you've got, well, what happens? Does she divorce? I already saw some headlines today that she was considering divorce, that they apparently have two separate legal teams. So is a divorce imminent? You know, where are the kids going to go? Clearly, she's a U.S. citizen. Ties seem to be here. So if he's deported, how is it going to work out? The really, really messy story and uh, a very, very messy situation. But... Even if you hate or love them, 
you can't help but feel sorry for their kids because the kids are going to live well, with it for the rest of their lives. There was a um, I I can't remember what show I had seen it on, but there is a an actress who was on uh, Kelly Rutherford, who was on Melrose Place, right? And her husband is from Germany. And I think the kids live in Morocco, and maybe he lives in Morocco too now. But a somehow the court said, you know what, uh, we you don't have full custody. It's a split custody situation, and I'm definitely surmising. But her kids live in somewhere between here and Germany, and that's exactly what could happen in this situation. Kids could end up somewhere else. Yeah. Now you know what's 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 interesting about it is what parental rights does he have if he is now being removed from the country and that's going to be an interesting thing to 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 look at because if he leaves uh what is she entitled to from a child support standpoint how can you enforce that if he you know sent back to italy uh if they're divorced it's a very very uh interesting sad but interesting at the same time so we'll have to see but I, it looks like we've got some time to see what happens and to jump back to something you said earlier, you know, you're in the public eye, you, whether you're whether it's on a reality show or whether it's even on Facebook. I have someone I know that enjoys a particular brand of beer that's not sold in Michigan. And they start, hey, we've got this, I've got, I'm bringing back another case of this beer and putting a picture of it on Facebook. And so I jumped on there and said, you do know you're breaking the law. Right, and telling everyone about it? <laughs> yeah. You know, you have to wonder. You know what it is? I think that, that these reality stars, the, the fame and the untouchable uh, element to it gets to their head because I've seen shows with, just like what you're talking about, maybe real estate shows where you've got these guys that are multimillionaire real estate brokers, and they're talking about the Cuban cigars that they've just brought. I was saying. <laughs> right? You know, and yeah. You have to wonder. I mean, you're, you're you're doing this. Everybody's watching. How stupid are you? You know, and that goes. <laughs> uh, there was an episode of The Real Housewives um, involving Joe. Maybe it was a year or two ago, and there was this whole discussion back before any of this uh, fraud or, or or legal stuff came out, where it was the, the thought that he was having an affair, and and there's this episode where he's on the phone. While he's out with his wife at this vineyard or something, and he's on the phone with somebody, clearly sounds like he's talking to a woman that he's having an affair with, and then his wife comes over and says, who are you talking to? And he's like, oh, nobody. And, and you know, it's all on television. <laughs> I mean, really? How stupid can you be? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think there's anyone, there's any, sa- there's, there's any saving those people. There really isn't. Oh. No, I think uh, the power <laughs> or the greed, it all gets to you, and then you act very stupid. And it, it's a shame. Yes, you know, but, but without them, we don't have a show, Peter. That's right. But you know what? You can also <laughs> question, what's the responsibility of the networks that put these people on? There's a show about Amish people. They take these poor Amish kids. They stick them because I guess you know in Amish culture, you're allowed this uh, portion of time to go out and see the world to determine whether you want to remain Amish or not. And they, they put these kids on TV, out in situations that they clearly have no experience in. You know, they've been plowing the fields, they've been erecting churches, they've been churning butter, and now here you are in a crack den, and, and 
they think that that's okay. So what's yeah, the responsibility yeah. of these networks for giving these money, you know, giving these kids money? Because I'm sure they're not making the millions that some of the Real Housewives are making. So, you know, sure. what do you, an Amish with twenty thousand dollars is Donald Trump. So you know, you you do this to these kids, and don't you as a network? Is it all about ratings? You know, I, just to to go off. I saw a movie the other the other week, and it's it's a, like sort of a direct. Um, Direct to film uh, oh, release, a doozy. Yeah. yeah, but you know what? It actually was really, really good. Um, I'm going to have to pull up the name of it while we're talking. But it was about. Uh, it's actually it was a it was a um, a second film in the series, and it was about this kid who had sort of stockpiled weapons and he was speaking out against authority, and um, you know that's how the the first one ended up. Um, but then, you know, the second one, uh, you talk about, let me try to pull up the name of the show because it's, I think it's, it's, it's interesting. Let's see here. Well, while I'm doing that, you know, the idea here is that, you know, you're sticking these kids in situations that they shouldn't be in and the poor Amish people, all right, I'm having difficulty, so we're just going to skip the name of the movie, but (laughs) the idea is, you know, you put these kids in situations, I'm going to get it next week. Um, and what's your responsibility? What is your, what is your, what is your obligation? The sure, idea that I was going sure. to mention with this movie is that, and I'm not content. I need to find it. Um, while this guy comes into a television station and he's exacting, you know, sorts of, of revenge on people and and that uh, sort of thing, there is the network producer who is sitting upstairs and. All the hostages are in the basement of the television studio. So they're all down there. He's upstairs. <laughs> and he's on the phone calling around saying, this is the greatest thing ever. Our ratings are through the roof. You know, all these sure. people are ha- held hostage in the basement. But that's okay because look at our ratings. And, and that's really, it's a movie, I get it. But it's also really sad because that's the way that the world is now. Yeah, it's, a, it's just a no. metaphoric situation is what it is, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you've got these people that uh, that don't care. They care only about the money. So you, you bring over the Amish, you give them a handful of cash, stick them in a crack den with some, you know, a whorehouse or something, and you watch the whole drama unfold. You see how terrible it is. And you think that's okay because you're the one that's making money. And I don't think that's right. I think that there is some uh, responsibility that you have to these people that you're creating these shows out of. But again, you know, you're not oh, going to bring. Wait. Oh, go ahead. I'm just going wait, on. Wait, wait for. Wait, wait. Oh, no, no, no. It's okay. You wait for something major to happen with that situation where there's a uh, a child who dies or or kills someone else, and then I'll look and see what happens. And they'll be hiding behind the First Amendment rights, but. Um, there's there's going to be a point at which where that's not going to be applicable anymore because you knew the risks. Yeah, yeah. So I will I'll find that movie because it actually was a good movie, um, a little violent but a good movie. And I think that 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 element of that that film really is um, a good depiction of what happens on network television. Let's bring in these people who are broken or who have problems or who aren't the sharpest tools in the shed. Let's have a great reality show. Let's get a laugh at their expense, and let's make a lot of money doing it. And I think that that's wrong. So 
All right, I'm mm-hmm. done with that. Soapbox <laughs> removed. Onward and upward. Yes. All right, so let's uh, let's shift gears. Let me just tell everybody what's going on this week. Uh, we've got a really really busy month on our Thursday show, Understanding Business. Let's just go through that real quick, Bob, if you uh, if you will. Yeah, go right ahead. This Thursday, October 9th, 10 a.m., we have special guest professional photographer Rick Garrity. Uh, Rick has been a professional photographer in the New Jersey, New York metro area for over 25 years, and he has worked with clients that include BMW, Canon, um, IBM, Panasonic. He's photographed Paul Newman, Sylvester Stallone, Danica Patrick, Kevin Smith, Oliver Stone, Charlie Sheen, so on and so on. And he is going to be on talking about the business of photography and what you need to do as a photographer, whether you're an amateur or a pro or developing, whatever you are, if you want to make this a career, what do you need to do? How do you protect your images? What sort of contract do you need to have? How do you protect people from you know, taking advantage of you or not paying you? What do you need to know about photography as a business? We're going to talk to Rick about that. And there's a special announcement that he's going to make for veterans. And this is a really great, if you're a vet in the New York, New Jersey area, and you have an interest in photography, you should not miss this show because he's going to announce a special program that's going to assist vets who have an interest in photography. It's going to be a free event. It's something you really have to tune into. So that's this Thursday, Rick Garrity. Following week, October 16th, 10 a.m., we're going to have celebrity chef, Fabio Viviani on. He has um, multiple restaurants and cookware in Bed Bath and Beyond. He's been on, or best known for being on Top Chef, but he's everywhere. He's going to be on Good Morning America the week that we, we have him on the show, and wow. he has an autographed book. His new book, Fabio's American Home Kitchen, is not even out until the end of October. He's given us an autographed copy that we're going to be giving away. And no, Bob, you cannot win. You can't even enter. But <laughs> let me tell you how you can enter. Very simple. All you have to do is submit a question. I don't care how you do it. I don't care through what meetings you do it. You can call us. You can email us. Tweet, Facebook, Google, YouTube, wherever you are, however you want to do it. Send in a question for Fabio that will be asked on the air. And we will take all of the questions that come in, put them into a random drawing, we'll pick a name on air, and that person's going to win the autographed copy of Fabio's book. Now, if nice. that's exciting enough for October, Thursday, October 23rd, we have special guest Captain Lee Rosebach on the show. Captain Lee is a, um, a, a captain of super yachts, mega yachts, and he is also one of the stars of the Bravo television show Below Deck, which features you know um, younger people involved in all aspects of yachting, and and you know it's a reality show. But Captain Lee has this this salty sea captain way about him, and he's got control of his boat. We're going to talk to him about leadership and what it takes to sort of maintain a crew and direct them, and then you know to to be a good leader. In something, not you know that just applies to yachting, but we can apply that to business oh. too. So well, it's a great example. I mean, you get your stuff on a boat, you got no place else to go, so you better get it together. That's right. And he, he's a he's a, a fun guy, 
Um, he's going to be a great guest. And then at the end of the month, uh, right now we have slated Amy Applebaum, who is an American uh, self-help writer, professional speaker, life coach, and she's the founder of the company Bootcamp for the Mind. Uh, she's also a big proponent of women succeeding in business, and we're going to talk to her at the end of the month about that. So October is a super huge month with guests, of course. Everyone really looks forward to Mondays when Bob and I give you the legal and business updates. So tune in gotcha. on Monday for that. Right, Bob? How, how could you miss this? Absolutely. Impossible. Impossible. Just not paying attention. SpaghettiOs, <laughs> everything you could possibly think of, we bring to you the table here. Making me hungry now. All right. Just don't bring the spoon. <laughs> That's right. You put it in the dishwater, get it cleaned up, don't carry it along with you. There you go. All right. Well, I'd like to thank everybody for tuning in live, downloading this show at a later date. Remember, our sponsor, Audible, has provided our listeners with a special link. Go to audibletrial.com forward slash UTL radio. Get your free book. It's a free audiobook download. Don't forget to tune in uh, tomorrow and Wednesday. Just take a look at utlradio.com for our programming schedule. And then join us this Thursday, especially if you are a vet for the special announcement by professional photographer Rick Garrity. Uh, that's going to do it for today. So until next time, thank you. Remember that there's power in understanding the law. Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. The moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations.